Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Before we go any further, um, (laughs) I have to show you this. I've come home to look after my mum. <laughs> oh my God, you're such a drama queen. You always have to be the center of attention. So that's it. That's it. So I went and broke, snapped my fibia uh, right near my ankle. Um, so yeah, I've been in a cast now for two weeks. I've only just told Brad because uh, I'm, quite, I'm quite embarrassed about the whole thing. Because of the payout. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm in a cast till Christmas and then I'm in a moon boat for, uh, it's just so bad. Come on. He hasn't shown Matt. you the mobility scooter yet. Though. Oh yeah, yeah. This is, I, 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 I you have to- one of the like little, oh yeah, you do, you totally do. I've got, we, I've got a wee basket to put my stuff in, you know, these clip out. It's awesome. So, so many questions, so many okay. questions. So how did I do it? If, if you... If you Google one wheel, oh, oh, actually, can I share my screen? One wheel. It's an electric one wheel, and you, it's, it's like it's a um, electric thing. Yeah, it's it's an electric thing that no, you stand that's on. Pathetic. If you you're if, pathetic. <laughs> you need to like do a little bit of work. You're already so you're supposed to be there looking after your mom, who's yeah. clearly looking after yeah. you yeah. because yeah. you can't yeah. handle her having more attention. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this is the level of friendship that we have. I'm getting shit from Denise about my uh, my, my my leg. So, look, I, I do feel bad. Mom, can we say hi to your mom? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mom. Mom, <laughs> this, she, this is all she's heard for, I don't know. No, I don't know if you yeah. know this, but so Jeremy, yeah. from the time that you were a little kid, she probably told you how annoying it is when you shouted Mom. from the yeah, other yeah. room yeah, yeah, instead yeah, yeah. of no, no. going to been, get when yeah. you want to speak with someone. Well, I, yeah. I, I can't actually get through that. Yeah, I'm, I'm he hasn't got a little bell that he rings, yeah. you know. Make- He'd probably like <laughs> one. This is my little mum. She hasn't done it here. This is my, my wee mum, Candy. Hello. I don't, hello. So I don't care that you haven't done your hair. I love the fact that your drama queen son needs attention so much that he has to go and injure himself just to get a little more looking after. It's been a big job. <laughs> <laughs> for decades. You've been looking after him forever. <laughs> I know. I just he's he's like a fly inside a plastic bottle. 
Can't get out. I believe it. I believe it. Okay, I'll let you go. Really nice to meet you. I'm so glad that Jeremy is there. And he's looking after me so well. (laughs) Looking after you. Yeah. Thank you. You know who's doing the looking after. Thank you. Bye-bye. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Take Andy. Bye. Oh, my God. We're totally keeping this in, too. Right, Jeremy? Right, Brad? Absolutely. This is the highlight of my year. Highlight. (laughs) Mom. Mom. Oh, my God. It really has been a dull year then. (laughs) Mom. Mom. The big loaf. (laughs) um, Where is she? Well, I mean, look, speaking of big years, it has been a big year, hasn't it, for all of us? Oh my, has it ever in mm. so many of the wrong kinds of ways. And then it's been really good. Like, I love some things about COVID. So it was yeah, great. Well, well yeah, okay. Well, what are the things that you like about COVID? Not traveling. Yeah. It's the, I mean, it's literally the first time I, it's the longest I haven't been on a plane in probably 25 years. Yeah, me too. I think last year I did something like 116 flights out of Sydney. And we haven't done any travel. Brad, I mean, what about you? Have you no, done- yeah, look, I'd be normally on a plane maybe once every t- three or four weeks, but yeah, nothing. And I, I love it. Like, and we've reached so many more people, I think, because everyone's yeah. sort of a bit more, I guess, amenable to the wonders of modern technology with Zoom and Teams and whatever. And, and we put on obviously the podcast, which is sort of steadily increasing popularity. And, uh, we've, we've been putting on a whole bunch of webinars for, I guess, for, for, I guess, more technically orientated sort of stormwater professionals. And we're getting, you know, two or three hundred people uh, tuning in every couple of weeks. Um, yeah, so it's really, I think it's actually been really effective. And I'm hoping that uh, we actually keep a lot of the, you know, systems uh, methods that we've actually adopted. So, yeah, and, and obviously in terms of the podcast, we've been able to reach out to so many different people that we would have otherwise just not been able to. So all the amazing people, whether they be in the States, oh, the, the UK. Um, there are still now, amazing people in the States in spite of the current <laughs> embarrassment. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, happens over the next uh, few years in the States. But obviously it gives us the opportunity to obviously reach you uh, really easily and effectively. And we've had many uh, chats remote virtually over the last uh what nine months or so yes it's been great and obviously you're calling from hobart today i am dialing in from hobart tasmania i'm actually in my office today i only come into the office probably a couple days a week so working from home is another joy of covid shifting that to spending more time working at home and having less of a commute which i appreciate well, well, let's 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 pull this back and introduce our guest today, Brad. Yeah, Maybe. look, uh, look, and it's I'm pretty excited about. It. Look, we've been uh, having various chats with Denise Hardesty. So, Doctor Denise Hardesty uh, is our wonderful guest today. And has to be said, I think if you go back to your high school reunions, Denise, you must be just absolutely killing it. You know, people go, must look at you and go, you're like the coolest kid in the playground. You know, you've almost it's an incredible resume. Like you've travelled all over the world. In various parts, like mind boggles to, to think how many passport stamps you've got, and they've actually done a whole bunch of wonderful work and research in various parts and education and teaching and etc. But look, your current role is your principal scientist at the CSIRO or principal research scientist and team leader with CSIRO's ocean and atmosphere team. So uh, I guess you're probably best to explain what that actually means, uh, Denise, apart from being the coolest kid in the playground. What, what do you actually So I do? think I'm more like the geekiest kid in the playground, <laughs> um, which is where I've probably been forever, which is completely fine with me. I'm happy to be the science geek that I am. And I feel really lucky to get to kind of to do the kind of work that I do that I 
think is actually something that really resonates with people, you know, working on plastic stuff, as you mentioned, Brad, I have lived and worked all over the world on everything from penguins in Antarctica Mm -hmm. to hornbills in Africa and tropical rainforests in Central and South America and worked in deserts in Mexico and all sorts of places, you know, but really working or kind of coming full circle to work back on plastic stuff the last 12, 14 years is you know, hands down the most satisfying work that I've been able to do. And I think it's because it's something, it's a topic, it's an issue that resonates with people. And we've really seen a huge growth in change in awareness and attention being paid to this issue. And, you know, I hope that in some tiny minuscule part, maybe that has a little bit to do with some of the research that we've been doing and putting the findings out there into the community and, you know, working with citizens and school kids and community members and industry partners and getting information out to government. So, um, I mean, I have the best job you could possibly have as a scientist in my view. Well, it's, um, we, we love a good backstory and, and obviously Denise, you've had a lot of time to listen to all of our podcasts. So you'll understand. So how did you end up in Hobart? Can we just backtrack? I mean, you, you've done all this wonderful work around the world. You, um, for our listeners, you've got a bit of an accent. Give us uh, the background. Where, where and how have you got to where you are? Well, I don't think I have an accent, so I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Come on. You sound a little bit funny when you talk. But no. um, I'm originally from the United States. I was born in California. I grew up living around the U.S. and traveling a lot, you know, domestically or moving a lot as a kid. I ended up in Australia in 2006 in far north Queensland, actually, is where I really started out doing work at CSIRO. I came to CSIRO for a three-year gig, and here I am, almost a decade and a half later, happily ensconced in Tasmania, which is, you know, as, as friends of mine from Australia told me before I moved here, the two best places you could live in Australia would be in far north Queensland or in Tasmania. And so I have now happily had the privilege to live in both those areas and I love it down here. I shifted from one area of CSIRO, um, from one particular business unit into another, Oceans and Atmosphere, and came down to Tassie about eight or nine years ago, and it's been fantastic. I love it here. It's great. Now, now, let's just dive into like the CSIRO. Can you explain to our listeners what that's all about? Because Brad and I know, and many of our listeners do, but can you tell us a little bit about the organization? Well, CSIRO is really actually in my view, even having been here for so many years, it's quite a fascinating place to to work because CSIRO is under one umbrella, you know, CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. It really houses and holds all this amazing brains trust for all different research areas and impact areas for Australia and Australians. And that's everything from space technology to diet and wellness to oceans to desert to you know indigenous knowledge to minerals and mining and metals to aquaculture and agriculture and you know how to produce the best cotton yields and all those different experts sit and you know scientists and support people and communications people sit in maybe 30 or 40 or 50 sites around the entire country, you know, from Alice Springs and Darwin to Brisbane, Sydney and Tasmania, you know, and Hobart. And we 
also work on everything from disease resistance to, you know, hydrogen. And, you know, right now, Cyro is really focusing on tackling these grand environmental and societal challenges that fall under these missions categories. But what it means is you have people to draw from in different parts of the country with different expertise that all sit within one organization. So I find it to be an incredibly stimulating place to work. And we also don't necessarily all know what one another are doing. You know, I sit at a site where there's around 450 people working on oceanographic modeling and, you know, doing upwelling work and looking at fisheries management and obviously plastic pollution and everything from threatened and rare fish species and, you know, kind of everything in between. So it's, it's a pretty incredible organization to get to be part of. Now, pre-COVID, can you imagine the water cooler talk at, at CSIRO? I mean, you just got all these amazing sort of scientists and geeks coming together. Can you imagine the, the water cooler talk? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard enough at Ocean Protect, you know, you go <laughs> have a bit of a chat, but it must be an amazing organisation to be in, like you said before, to draw on other people's expertise. I mean, what, do, do you have mm. like a, a long list of people and you go, right, that you're, that's an expert, I'm going to ring Dave from blah, blah, blah to help me out. I mean, is there a lot of collaboration that goes on? Um, What's the culture like within Sara? Well, the culture is, it's really positive. I think it's really been growing in terms of kind of diversity and being inclusive as well, which I think is really important because I think working with people who are only like you or who think and interact and, you know, do science the way you do, that ends up to kind of more simple dimensioned outcomes. But if you bring in people with different views and perspectives and experience and knowledge, then I think we get a much richer opportunity for broader perspectives. You know, one of the things that I think is really cool here is I can walk over to the next building and talk to engineers to say, hey, we're looking at making or building this kind of thing, and they can go and build a prototype for it in the shop, you know? And so having that kind of expertise, and I mean, that's gives a really good example of the full breadth and, you know, experience that we have here. It's, it's pretty cool. So what is the water cooler talk like? Well, some would say that when you bring together a bunch of scientists, you're not going to have a lot of talk because people (laughs) tend to be fairly introverted. And while that is the case in some regards, you also do have lots of exciting conversations with, you know, geneticists doing really exciting work or, you know, as I mentioned, engineers that are building neat things or software designers who are, you know, using artificial intelligence and machine learning, bringing those people together and those skill sets is, I think, really unique to be able to do that here. And it's one of the things that makes the work that I'm doing super fun and rewarding because we're able to think laterally and bring in new ideas and approaches and really grow something bigger and more and better, hopefully, that really meets the needs of people, of council members, of you know waste managers and those sorts of things. And I mean, as you guys know, and I don't know if you've seen it, we actually just had a, an article come out in the conversation yesterday, focusing on some of the artificial intelligence and machine learning work that we're doing, you know, with a pilot project in Hobart City Council. So the fact that we're also embedded in local communities is really satisfying because it's a way that we can integrate the work that we're doing with, you know, councils and state government and community members and school groups and all those sorts of things. So that's, that makes it really fun, at least for me. 
And it's certainly not research for research sake, is it? Like the the research is very much focused on really significant current problems that need significant attention and solutions readily applied. And obviously that's sort of, I guess, how we've come to sort of work together is this focus on ocean plastic in particular. So let's call it though actually otherwise ocean-borne plastic because the goal for all of us is to keep it from getting out there in the first place. And so by tackling this land-based waste before it ever gets out there. It's that ocean-bound plastic that we're really all trying to, as you say, work together to stop it getting out there. So that's, you know, absolutely the case. And you're you're right. I mean, what we do is incredibly applied work. Mm. And I think that's part of what makes it so meaningful, right? We're trying to help bring together approaches and minds and creative solutions to solve today and tomorrow's problems in meaningful ways. What I would say is like as economically, environmentally, socially responsible ways as we possibly can and bringing all those things together is really important to me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And how did your interest or expertise or experience in ocean? born plastic or ocean-bound plastic, I should say. Where did that start from? Because you've traveled all over the world. You got undergraduate masters and PhD degrees, but where this ocean plastic focus come from or begin? So in my twenties as a- Which was know, what, last week? Is it? Absolutely. As like a young scientist and, you know, I was a bit of a bird geek. And I had the privilege of going out to Midway Atoll in the middle of the Pacific Islands. Wow. And I was out there to set up an albatross study. So I was, you know, obviously super stoked because you get dropped off in a plane. Planes don't land out there very often. Okay, you're going to be out there for the next few months. You know, I'm walking around on this island with these amazing birds and, you know, and some people that, you know, it's like, (laughs) you know, it's just not a really hugely populated island. You Mm. walk around or bicycle around. So there's maybe like 40 or 50 people out there, you know, providing support and those kinds of things. And out there, back in the era when people still took slides, (laughs) you know, and had film cameras. So yes, it was some time ago. Yes. I have slides like those famous Chris Jordan photos of albatross with all this plastic in them. So, you know, I saw firsthand decades ago, toothbrushes and lids and bottle caps and, you know, entire little glass bottles with metal lids and, you know, hard plastic fragments and all those things I saw in dead birds. I still remember there's 
an, an albatross that I have a photo or a slide of with a plastic bag over its head, you know, that was dead. And so, you know, and I was out there at a time when you could swim with monk seals and, you know, and I'm seeing this waste on these beaches, you know, that wrap around, you know, these gorgeous beaches that wrap around this little island. And there was a room, a storage room on the island, which was just filled with plastic crate after plastic crates from floor to ceiling of solely cigarette lighters, because that was one particular item that people could pick up. And so there were, you know, meters high and, you know, long, like literally filling this room, cigarette lighters that would have come out of the stomachs of birds Mm. that had eaten those, mistaking them for food or, you know, perhaps with fish eggs attached and then regurgitated them or died with them in their stomachs. And so those were on the island. And so I guess, you know, that really stayed with me. And, you know, I worked on seabirds, I worked on land birds, I, you know, then began working on lots of different topics and doing research around the world. And then years later, when I ended up in Australia, you know, there's a federal threat abatement plan here. And that means that the federal government has identified marine debris as a key threatening process to threatened wildlife within Australian waters. And when I was reading that document and looking at it, it really came home to me that there's so many different knowledge gaps. And so as a science geek, my job, my role, my currency is to, you know, what I want to do is try to fill those knowledge gaps. Mm. And in a sense, you know, really brought things full circle, you know, so I've done lots of work on seabirds and turtles and plastic ingestion and entanglement and, you know, risk and all those sorts of things. Um, But I guess that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question of how did I get into this was really kind of going back to something that I had done years before. And, you know, and I've spent many, many days out at sea on ships where we're looking at and counting marine wildlife. And also you're seeing trash sometimes, you know, not very often in the ocean. But, you know, when you think about how vast the ocean is, seeing, you know, human trash out there over the years, it's it's just really confronting. And so to be able to come and work on that topic and try to answer some of those questions and fill some of those knowledge gaps, knowing that the government of Australia had decided that's a really important area to focus on, an important topic, like that felt meaningful to me as a scientist, I suppose. One of the first images that I saw was from a Liaison albatross and it might even be from the Midway Islands, but I used to use that in my first sort of talks or presentations of showing people what's going on with plastic pollution. So do you just want to explain for our listeners, you know, in, in particular, what happens with the albatrosses? And I mean, I think everyone's seen the photos of, of, of them ingesting it, but can you just, you know, take us through how they're getting the plastic in them and what happens as far as feeding their chicks, et cetera? So albatross, like other seabirds, and I think this is actually a really important, or, you know, to me, it's a pretty pretty cool life feature of some of these birds. They're hatched on land, obviously, on these islands, typically where people don't live because it's safer and, you know, that's people, you know, seabirds tend to breed on inaccessible to humans islands. So they hatch and they're raised by their parents for the, you know, weeks and months. And then they fledge. And fledging means they leave the nest, they leave the island. And those birds, albatross in particular, will never touch land again. 
for five, six, seven, eight years until they return to land to breed. So they truly are what they call pelagic, meaning living life at sea. They sleep on the wing. They sleep on the sea. You know, all these different birds, they are really living out there in the big blue ocean and they only come back to land to breed. So, you know, six or seven years at sea, they have to survive all those conditions trying to be those naive young birds learning how and what to feed on. And so sometimes, particularly in areas where they encounter it, they'll mistake plastic as food. It might look like their prey. It might be the same color. It might be the same shape. It may also, frankly, be a surface that fish eggs have attached to. And so they're eating it because it, you know, really has some of their prey, you know, those fish eggs, but inside that is a piece of plastic. And so those birds will eat it. You know, it goes, gets either stuck in their gullet, in their throat, you know, or makes its way down. Now, many seabirds have evolved through thousands and thousands of years to dispel or to dislodge or to regurgitate what they call indigestible matter. Now, historically, that's things like pumice stones or bones and things like that. And increasingly, those boluses, they're called a bolus, that bit of indigestible material, Increasingly, what we find is that that contains plastic in it, which is an indication of how much plastic is out there in the environment that those birds are mistakenly eating. So how does it affect a bird? Well, maybe it doesn't affect it that much. You know, if they eat one little piece and it passes or they're able to spit it back up. However, if they eat a lot of plastic, they can eat something that's sharp, which can cut or perforate the gut which can obviously lead to, you know, sepsis or other issues, which could ultimately kill it. You can also end up with a bird that ends up underweight because they are eating this quote unquote food that has no nutritional value and it's taking the place of food in their belly. So they actually don't have the space to eat anything that has that, you know, nutritional content for them, which they require. And living out there on the wing, living out there in the marine environment, it's a harsh environment, right? You have to be on the top of your game. You need, you know, Mm. the energy stores, the resources to be able to migrate, to be able to reproduce, to be able to, you know, perform the mating rituals, you know, to, to raise young and to forage at sea and all those things, because actually birds have quite elaborate dances and things that they do, albatross in particular. And so if you don't have enough food because you've eaten plastic, then you're basically suboptimal in all these ways, which means that you may not reproduce, which means that you, you know, if you don't have offspring, then you're going to start to see a decline in the number of these birds and in their populations and all those sorts of things. So it can have both lethal impacts. So eating plastic can kill a bird and it can also make them less quote unquote fit and less able to survive. The other thing to think about is that Some of these birds actually migrate over 10,000 kilometers Mm. twice a year, right? So you really do need your energy stores to be able to travel such long distances on the wing to get to that next place, you know, to feed, to provide food to your offspring and all those sorts of things. So plastic gets both in, you know, eaten by birds or sometimes particularly out there in the ocean, they can get tangled up in 
in debris and fishing line and fishing nets. And obviously that can have quite deadly effects as well. It, it all makes you know, so much sense, really. And and Brad and I have been lucky enough to to be on this podcast for a couple of years. But it's not just seabirds, whales, turtles, people. Or, you mm. know, we're all ingesting bloody plastic and, and, and it's not good for us. You know, you talk about birds not being on or being able to, to fly that far. Um, we've had Daryl Blatchley, one of our first podcast guests who um, – uh, lives in the Philippines and does necropsies up there and these whales are just full of plastic and what happens with them, you know, they eat the plastic and that means they can't ingest uh, krill or whatever and then they get weaker and then they can't, um, you know, mate or survive, whether that's whales, birds, you know, with um, speaking to, to people about, you know, um, human consumption of plastic, you know, Denise, we're, we're all eating a lot of plastic and, and it's all, whether it's birds, what do you think's going on? I mean, I mean, you're our last podcast guest for for 2020, and I really want to go deep on this. Uh, do you think it's a human health issue what we're facing at the moment? So that's a really good question, and that's kind of the you know gazillion dollar question that everybody really wants to know. And we say and we presume that it's it's resulting in lots of harm, but we don't have a lot of evidence for that in part because carrying out those studies is really, really difficult or tricky to do for obvious reasons. And how do you find a human in today's world that has not had exposure to plastic? Mm. I would say, however, that some of those reports that people have seen that say we're eating a credit card worth of plastic a month or something, that is not correct. Oh, okay. So what happens is if somebody writes a report and they are looking for, you know, perhaps um, a soundbite, things can be taken a little bit out of context. So if you take the highest number and multiply it by the highest number, multiply it by the highest number of the biggest item, then you can come to this, you know, potential number, which says it's around a credit card. When you actually look at it, that's not what we're doing. We're not eating a credit card worth of plastic. And to be honest, I think those sorts of statements can harm the understanding of people who end up with this quite kind of terrified or problematic mm-hmm. view of, oh my God, plastic, you know, we're eating all this plastic and it's killing us. The same thing I get asked, would you eat fish? Are fish safe to eat? Because, you know, we eat fish and fish eat plastic. However, most of the fish that most of us eat, we actually cut out the digestive system. We don't eat the guts of the fish unless you're eating anchovies or sardines in their entirety. So the odds that you are eating plastic from eating fish is incredibly low. Furthermore, if it was me, I would be much more concerned about metal or other environmental contaminants in my fish if I'm getting them from near urban areas, near agricultural runoff areas, I'd be far more concerned about some of the other potential contaminants than I would be about plastic that I could have possibly gotten from a fish. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.